Jean Willis is a prolific children's author. She's a writer of many moods and colours, by turns witty, cheeky and thoughtful. Some of her best loved books include The Bog Baby, King of Tiny Things, Who's in the Loo and Singer Song of Bottoms. Her partnership with illustrator Tony Ross has resulted in a collection of books that have established classic status, including Dr. Zargul's Book of Earthlets and the forever popular Tadpole's Promise. I'm very excited today to welcome into the reading corner Jean Willis. Hello, Nikki. Of course, we're going to be starting by talking with the latest book, which is Hom, uh, The Best of Friends, The Last of His Kind. Tell us then uh, about this latest book, Hom. Hom is based on a little hominid, basically a prehistoric missing link. Um, and a little boy is shipwrecked and lands, swims to an island where he is saved by this very sweet little prehistoric creature who no one else knows about. And I suppose stories like King Kong and E.T. have always really moved me. I don't know why particularly, but the thought of something being the last of its kind is a very emotional thought, I suppose. And I've always wanted to meet one, whether it was like a, a cryptid animal of some sort, like, um, I don't know, a yeti or, you know, those, those, those themes run through my head an awful lot. I don't know why, but that's what Hom's about, really. And I have to say that the, that Paddy Donnelly, who's done the illustration uh, for the book, has kind of picked that up in some of the cave paintings as well, because yeah. we see creatures that once were. There's the dodo very famously in the cave painting. Yes. And there's the mammoth there as well, a kind of witness to things that have gone before and are no longer. I wonder if we could hear a little bit, actually, just to give a flavour of the beginning of the story. Yes, I always cry at the end, Nikki, so I'm going to read the front. OK. I think it's very important as well in this story that he's a secret from the adults. Mm. Because all people want to do is experiment on them and basically change them and take, take their liberty away. Mm. So this is written in the first person because the last thing this boy wants is to lose his friend to experimenters and exploiters. Mm -hmm. So here we go. I've never told anyone about Hom. No one knows he exists, only me and you, because I trust you. The grown-ups mustn't know about him. They'll come and catch him and take him away. But this is his home. He won't be happy in their world. Hom is a peace-loving creature. I don't know what kind of creature exactly. It doesn't matter to me. He's just Hom. I met him after the shipwreck. I swam to a deserted island far away. Well, not one person came to find me. But Hom did. We'd never seen anything like each other. I'm not sure who was more scared, me or him. We laughed about that later. He's hairier than me, but not as tall. I don't know how old he is. It's not important. We're much more alike than different. I think what's so good about many of your stories is that you can take them on many different levels. So we can take this at face value, but there are also um, lots of other 
ideas that it starts fermenting in your mind about how we just generally how we deal with outsiders, not only creatures that are going to become extinct, but how we deal with other human beings that are not like us too. Well, quite. And I think children are very, very perceptive of that. I think they're far more willing to accept. I mean, here's this little guy with somebody he's never met before and he, he just wants to play with him. He's just like another kid. Yeah. There's a very moving part in this story where a ship comes and could rescue the boy that has been shipwrecked. Yeah. And he chooses not to go. In in a sense, he's potentially turning his back on being reunited with his family. That's quite a deep moment, really. Well, I suppose it depends on your family, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, I'm, if you look at the characters on that boat, you wouldn't want to go with them, really. He's been having all this fun, and yeah. he's made his friend. But on a, on a more serious level, yes, he's he's sacrificing himself, really. I mean, it's it's fairly disguised at the end exactly what's going to happen. But if adults read between the lines, and I'm sure some children will, it's obvious he's going to stay with him until he no longer exists, then come home. We just won't abandon him. And like you say, it is what we do with, you know, if we discover something new, an animal, we think we can put it in a cage. We can own it because yes. it, it doesn't have the same value as we do. <laughs> Yeah, I always think that. And also, I don't think it depends how big they are either, because I, I collect and breed exotic beetles. I don't know if you know that about me. And metamorphosis really excites me as well. So I also breed caterpillars, you know, moths and butterflies. And um, I think they're, they're just so important. I wouldn't, you know, dream of abusing them or swatting a fly or anything. I don't. I just don't think it's our business to destroy everything, quite honestly. Just thinking about some of the connections between Hom and other books that you've written, like this real interest in the natural world, um, mm-hmm. in things like Bog Baby, King of the Tiny Things, they seem to me to have a similar feeling behind them. Well, I think it's because in all of them, they're all based on truth. They're, I mean, Bog Baby was true in 98% of its storyline I did go to the Bluebell Wood with my sister we weren't meant to go because it was a main road and we had gone fishing for newts so the only little bit of fiction was the fact that what we caught wasn't a newt but the rest of it you know the fact that I felt compelled to do whatever my slightly older sister said that's in the book I remember that feeling of having crossed the road, that main road, to go fishing with her. I heart, She didn't give a toss at whether mum found out, but I, it was eating me up because I'd been a bad girl, you know. I couldn't, I couldn't cope. So I think the bit where the mother finds the bog baby that the girls have been hiding in the story is quite cathartic for me because I could just say, actually, hands up, I did a wicked thing. And my mum wasn't that, that angry, I suppose. And that's in the story as well. So, and the conservation thing at the end, obviously, we'd put this little creature back. So he could breed and he didn't become extinct, which brings us back to home, I suppose. Yeah, uh, that's what I was saying, really, about little little yeah. threads that you can see, threads of interest. And King of the Tiny Things, again, this is well, quite small things in the natural world. Yeah, well, that's because that one's based on my love of caterpillars. And I suppose that comes from my relationship with my granddad, because he was my soulmate, really. He was my best, best chum. And... He used to pick me up from school and outside the school there was this fantastic tree. It probably wasn't as big as I, as big as it really is or, or as it seemed to me as a child. But in spring it would just drip with caterpillars. They were blue, yellow, red stripes. I can still remember them. 
Wow. And he used to bring a jar and I would collect them and take them home and watch them go through their life cycle. And then if my cat didn't eat them, <laughs> release them back to whence they came. And I couldn't get over that magical transformation. And I still can't, which is why I still carrying on collecting and breeding caterpillars, I suppose. Tell us a little bit more about that, because I'm absolutely mm. fascinated. Do you have to do you buy them in? Do you? Sometimes it depends. Um, I get my beetles from websites usually. My my kids buy them for Mother's Day or whatever. And my best one ever was two years ago when I got some huge cocoons of giant atlas moths. And I'd got a big cage because I can't stand anything being caged. I don't shut the cage, but you have to suspend these cocoons on little bits of cotton so they're just dangling free because should the moth emerge, it's going to be huge. I mean, it's the size of both my hands put together. Wow. anyway nothing happened nothing happened and I just thought well they're not viable and then one day I came upstairs and there was this magnificent creature just had just emerged from the cocoon and it was just drying her wings and I I, ah, I just was overcome with joy I think and in the end there were about five of them they were all flying around flying around my office and laying eggs Metamorphosis of caterpillars is amazing, isn't it? Because if I understand it correctly, they actually go into a liquid form before they form again, which I just find unbelievable. How do they do that thing? No, it's real magic, that is, I think. How long do they live? Well, it rather depends. I mean, if it's an exotic butterfly like that, I don't usually get exotic ones because you can't release them. But I just let them fly around in the warm room and they're quite happy. The ones like the giant atlas moths don't eat because they spend all their larva days stuffing their faces. So they've got enough reserves to do what they need to do, which is basically breed and lay, and then they'll die, which always floors me. I can't stand it, but... You know, some live longer than others. Beetles, I've got some lovely ones here at the moment. They're um, African jewel beetles. They only live about four months. But like many beetles, the larval stage is very long. My no stag beetle, he'll be a larva for oh, three years, four years. And you might have six months as a grown up beetle, maybe more. Rhino stag beetle, give me a sense of scale. How big am I uh, thinking? About as big as your thumb, I'd say. Right. Magnificent. I always get breeding pairs, but I haven't managed to breed those yet. You haven't talked about spiders. I don't have any spiders because two members of my family are are arachnophobic, so that wouldn't be very kind. But we have had a few disasters with the crickets. I've had praying mantis, which I raised from tiny little nymphs, and they start off on fruit flies. They want to eat fruit flies. And then as they got older, they want crickets and locusts. So I was breeding those in my office where I write. And inevitably, some of them escaped and they went down the stairs and started breeding behind my daughter's wardrobe. So she could all she could hear was the song of crickets chirruping away behind her knicker drawer. And she wasn't very pleased with me. So we're talking about lots of little things here. Um, what about frogs and... Oh, lovely. I've, I've had um, four smooth-clawed toads from South Africa, four of those. And one of them lived for 25 years and all his offspring are living in Bedford and other places across the country. So it's just produced so many tadpoles. So I'm getting a sense then of why things like slug needing a hug and uh, tadpoles promise and mayfly. I'm getting a sense of now the person behind the writing of those stories. Well, I think I spent a lot of my time on my belly in the grass when I was a kid. And I remember watching these 
they're called leather jackets it's a it's a crane fly larva sort of coming up through the grass and 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 all the all the daddy long legs i suppose just emerging in the, in the in the dusk and just being surrounded by them and there was just so many other little things just in a square of grass that were living and crawling and going around their lives and i just thought well, there's a whole other world down there there is hmm. so the books that we're talking about yeah. So far, are the ones that I would say have a sense of wonder in them. And then there's a very different voice, the voice of the cautionary tale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and you've got one of those coming out soon as well. Old MacDonald had a phone. <laughs> I can still see the connection between what we've just been saying, but the tone in these is quite different, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And I think that's probably because I've always loved a cautionary tale. Again, going back to my granddad, because he used to play the organ at church. He was quite musical and also had a piano in his house. And he used to play me a record called Albert and the Lion, <laughs> which is a cautionary tale about a family who take their child to the zoo. And he's got a, a stick with a horse's head handle, which he keeps annoying a lion with. And eventually the inevitable happens and the, the lion eats him. And that stuck in my mind. And I thought it was both hilarious and terrifying. And then, of course, they had a book and I, I learned about Matilda and the matches. I mean, the horrific, horrific rhymes that you would probably never thrust on children today. But it seemed to be OK to read things like that to children in those days. So cautionary tales are sort of part of my DNA, I think. And they come out every so often. So the first three books I ever had published were all cautionary I like the genre and I like doing the sort of rollicking rhyme that goes with them. Let's just talk a little bit about Old MacDonald Had a Phone. Yeah. So this is all about looking down and not looking up, really, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. It follows from three others that are actually all about the perils of the misuse of technology. So take us through from Chicken Clicking, which right. I think is the first one. Yeah, well, Chicken Clicking came around simply because, I mean, as authors, you're always looking for a little gap in the market, aren't you? And it was around the time when I, I was seeing, you know, nieces and nephews and what have you with their newborns and small children in various various households. And I was quite shocked to see how good they were at using phones and screens and various devices before they could even stand. And I was just idly looking up facts and things. And uh, I found this device you could attach to a potty and basically watch a device while he was doing his business. And I thought, this is really frightening. And then I looked at the statistics for, you know, how many children have been bullied online and had been groomed online, you know, as young as the age of five. And I thought, well, where are the picture books that are dealing with this? So I sort of went in quite hard with chicken clicking. And it's got a frightening ending. But I thought that message has got to stick, quite frankly. And if you if you frighten one child a little with a scary story, it's far better than them not remembering what can happen to them. So we've got chicken clicking on yeah. the perils of internet shopping. Well, chicken clicking was more, was more about finding a friend online than the shopping. You started off with the shopping and then it was the little chick wants to find a friend online and... Of course, she thinks she's found the perfect person and goes off to the woods to meet. And of course, it's not who she expected and she's in peril. And then we have Troll Stinks, which is a play on trolling. 
and being mean to people over the internet. Yep. Um, there was hashtag Goldilocks, which is yes. oversharing. You know, when I go to old reunions with my friends, because I had quite a riotous, amazing teenage years, and we always say, <laughs> we always say to each other, oh, thank goodness we didn't have mobile phones, thank goodness there wasn't the internet. So I feel for very much for teenagers who might forget in a moment of jollity and gay abandon that what they're doing now is going to be seen by their employers if they care to search their records, which is, a, I think that's an awful thing. And it has to be said that although um, Old MacDonald is a cautionary phone, they actually do find a good use for their phones in there. Yeah, it's a more positive story, that one. It's just about not being on them all the time because of what you're missing and also what other people are missing when they could have been enjoying you. It seems to me that one of the things that you're very good at doing is fixing on a, a big idea and getting that across very, very economically. Um, and even though these are books for children, actually, as an adult reading them with a child, you're, you're kind of picking up that point as well. You were a copywriter in a former life. I wondered yeah. whether that actually helps with this kind of economy of writing. Oh, it's the best training you can have, really. I remember <laughs> my first boss, I was working at a place called Doyle Dane Burnback, and it was just like Mad Men. It really was. I was of that era. I was the only girl in a in an office full of 40-year-old drunken men, basically. And it was it, it really was a baptism by fire. And I remember writing some body copy for, I think it was for a whiskey ad. And my boss came in and it was the best lesson I'd ever had, really. It was a horrible thing to do to me because I'd been working weeks on this piece of copy, which I'd crafted and honed and made all poetic and lovely. And he just picked it up and he ripped it in half very neatly. And he said, you don't need the front. That's all you need. And he held up the bottom bit, bottom few lines. And I just thought, I get it. And after that, an author, because if you're writing a TV commercial, you've got to cram everything into 30 seconds. So you learn how to pray everything down. And the other thing in advertising, you had a really strong concept. That seems to have vanished now, but we were trained. You have the concept, you build everything around it. You've got to have a big idea. So that's how I start with the picture books. And then I'll sort of ask about for ages, going over it and going over it. But the, what I'm trying to do is pare it right, right down to its raw ingredients mm -hmm. because the pictures should be doing the rest of the job, mm -hmm. especially for children. And I've been lucky enough to work with illustrators who put all the things that I have left the space for, the words that have gone unsaid but are hinted at and the thoughts, they can fill in for me. Absolutely. I wanted to, we can't really do an interview with you without talking about Tony a little bit. And I have saved a book um, that I'm desperate to talk to you about, which is Tadpole's Promise, which is a piece of pure genius I know Klaus Pfluger calls it genius and I think it's absolute genius too <laughs> and of course that's you and Tony together so tell us a little bit about I mean you've known each other for a long time now yeah the first book Tony did for me was was the very first Dr Zargle mm. Dr Zargle's book of earthlets which I'd sort of left on Klaus's desk and then we both went out for a nice nice lunch and then Tony turned up. I don't know where, where he'd been, but he saw the manuscript on Klaus's desk and read it and said that he wanted to do it. He thought it was very funny. And not long after, I went out for yet another lunch because people had lunches in those days. And Klaus brought the drawings or the illustrations for Dr. Zargle. And they were just spot on, you know. 
And I thought, here's a guy I can really work with because we've got the same sense of humour. And I know if I write a certain line, I know I sort of know what he's going to do with it. But then he'll always surprise me with a sort of hilarious subtext of things going on in the background. I mean, you, if you look at Tadpole's Promise, you'll notice there's all sorts of things going on, which I never told him to do. Mm. The Tadpole's, you know, sort of in the bottom of the picture, doing all sorts of things and falling in love on their own. Another set oblivious to the rest of the main story. He just puts all these lovely little details in. I don't dictate to him. He doesn't dictate to me. I shove it under the door, basically. I know what he's going to do, plus his, plus his surprises. So Tadpole's Promise had a false start, actually. I think I was probably 19 when I wrote that. Then I published Georgie Grubb with Klaus. I did the first three. And then, I think it was before Zargle, I slipped in that text. And he didn't like it. He said, you can't, we can't possibly publish this for children. It's too sad. It's too this. It's too that. And how on earth are you possibly going to make a character out of a tadpole? You know, it's all that. I shoved it in a drawer. And then when the time is right, as often it is, sometimes the time is right, isn't it? Mm. I showed it to him again and he really liked it. It's the one book that I, I could say I wouldn't change anything on. Mm. Most, there's always something. But this just fell into place the end the end twist, the way Tony had illustrated it round the other way so the tadpole and the caterpillar could meet in the in the gutter of the book where the willow met the water. She was his beautiful rainbow and he was her shiny black pearl. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Now I've got to ask you, because I ask children, I, I read this story a lot to children of all ages. Yeah. And I'll often ask them, do you feel sorry for the huh, I do that caterpillar? Too. Or the tadpole. Yeah. And it varies from age to age. Oh. I don't know if you've discovered that when you... No, I always get, oh, no, the caterpillar was, you know, she, she, she was horrible to him. She deserved everything she got. I often get them feeling sorry for the caterpillar, the butterfly, oh. when they're younger and not when they're older. And I found that really interesting yeah. how their sentiments seem to shift. Yeah. I always point out. I don't think it's a bitter, a bitter, sad ending. It's a, it's a very natural ending, isn't it? And he still, it wasn't malicious. He just, just didn't realise, did he? This poor frog when he had his girlfriend. We also talk about it in terms of it being like a Romeo and Juliet story, yes. <laughs> or Silence of the Lambs. Oh no, you didn't say <laughs> really. <laughs> And another thing that I do with that, I, I don't know why I'm telling you this, it's, it's just so fascinating to be able to talk to the creator of this oh. piece. Um, I'll often also ask them what they think the moral is, if there's a moral, and if there is a moral, what it would be. And I get such completely different answers. And I find that, that for me, is a really interesting thing to talk to teachers about how non-didactic it is. And you can discuss different morals. Did you have a moral in mind, though? No, I haven't got any morals. You know that, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> Which morals do they come up with then? Things like you shouldn't make a promise if you can't keep it. Okay. And then some people say you shouldn't expect people to make promises and expect them to keep them, which is completely different. It just varies. Oh. I find it really interesting. So th thank you for giving us such a rich um, piece of literature to work with. Well, they use it for, um, in philosophy classes in Canada, apparently, with their teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I have had hilarious letters about what I was thinking when I wrote this story. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, are you saying all girls only like to wear, you know, bright colours? That's the caterpillar. Why is she dominating him? And 
I said, well, she's a caterpillar and she lives in a tree. She's not dominating anybody. You know, a lot of it was they went too deep. They were looking at things that weren't actually there. Mm. And I often think, you know, I wonder what Shakespeare would have thought of the way O-level and analysis goes of his text. I wonder if he meant half the things people reckon he was thinking. I bet he wasn't. We could talk about Tadpole's promise for the rest of our time, but I want to pick up one more voice that I detect in your work. It's not to do with the awe of nature or the, the cautionary tale. It's what I call the silly voice. Oh, yes. Got to you know, the singer song of Bottoms. Oh, yes. And Who's on the Loo. Yes. I mean, you're a bit irreverent, really. <laughs> Most of the time, you say, I try, to, I try to have a big idea. And sometimes there's room just to be silly and entertain, isn't there, I suppose? Although who's in the loo is, I think that that is a very serious issue, actually. There mm. are no public toilets. You can't get into them. And whenever I go to them, there's always someone in there. And what the hell are they doing? I, I think they're trying on trousers at Marks and Spencer's or, you know, having a sandwich. I don't know what they're doing, but they won't hurry up. And sing a song of bottoms is just... That's pure silliness. Joyful, isn't it? Yes. So we've kind of covered a number of things that I've seen in your work, but what do you think is the essential Jean Willis? I think it's humour with poignancy and it's delighting in the magic of really tiny things Mm. that children can see. Maybe they miss them now, but I want them to know about them. Mm. I think one of the most successful ones, oddly enough, with children in schools is bog baby still i can't believe how protective they are of him i've got a little tiny latex model of him and there have been fights in the playground about who was going to care for him and the boys were telling the girls you mustn't put him there it's he'll get too dry it's all this he's got to stay damp this is what's so delightful about kids they've gone into it they're believing everything i've said to them And they believe he's a real thing for now, even though they know in their hearts he's not. They want him to be. I'm trying to keep that going in me as well as in them. Well, I hope that one of these days when things get back to normal, that Mm. maybe I'll be invited along to one of the events that you're running. Maybe you'll get me dressed up as a goat running around (laughs) the stage again or a dinosaur with a sausage. You've no (laughs) idea what I've got in lined up for you, Nikki. (laughs) Uh, But it's been such a joy talking to you today, Jean. Thank you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.